0: Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for listening. It's Justin Hahnemann on the Contender Cast, shining a light on bright ideas. And today, guys, we're in the beverage space. And you guys are going to love this conversation as we're talking about not just one beverage company, but a set of beverage companies and just the entire space in general and where it's headed. Um, We're talking about early stage development of these companies. And on the podcast today is Carlton Fowler. He is a partner with Goat Rodeo Capital. Carlton, it's so great to have you on the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me
0: on, Justin. I'm excited to be here. Dude, so thank you so much for making the time. Um, I'm passionate about the beverage industry. I actually spent 10 years um, in the industry at Coca-Cola, and I've worked with some of the, the major players since then. And, and you know, with this podcast over the last couple of years, I've had a chance to meet a lot of the new upstart brands in this space. And, um, and man, you're working with some of those some of those today, which is so cool. Um, let's start with this though. I, I did a lot of research on you before the podcast and I could see some of the linkage to how you got here with your work at ENJ J Gallo and whatnot, but just share some of your own personal path to getting into the, the venture capital space.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm <laughs> I've kind of been all over the place you know, before, before and J Gallo, I was as varied as working for the department of Homeland security and then also uh, moving to the Cayman Islands to build out some hotel and commercial properties. <laughs> that, but that must
0: have been rough. I think, um,
1: <laughs> yeah, it, must been, it was it was tough to in the Cayman Islands for a while. Um, I, I think the beverage path though really started uh, at Ian J Gallo. Uh, it was it was you know a really terrific experience. I actually reported in directly to Ernest Gallo, and it was really unique because you know Gallo is very well established in the wine space and, and felt that because of its fixed cost advantages and distribution, marketing, et cetera, that have the right to win in the spirit space as well. So I got to spend a lot of time directly with Ernest Gallo unpacking, hey, what makes a brand successful? How do we build new brands that can go out there and compete with some of these really old, really established brands that some of the competitors have? And I think that was my, really my first um, first introduction to, to thinking through, you know, not only does this brand look good on shelf, et cetera, but what what are all the necessary go to market and support attributes that can that can really put together a business market and a go to market that has that has success And as i was going through that process i, I kind of became more and more obsessed of okay well we've, we've started to kind of figure out this problem from a, a large supplier standpoint what happens if if we take a blank sheet of paper um, and get even wilder and crazier in some of these go-to-market business models sure. and, and start from the seat stage up that's
0: awesome. Well, and, and, I, and um, Goat Rodeo Capital, Venture Capital Fund, focused on early stage opportunities in the alcoholic beverage industry or in that space. So how did you navigate your way to saying, you know what, I, I've got some experience in and around the space. You, you've got the, the MBA background and whatnot, Michigan and whatnot. I mean, how did you decide we're going to start a, a, a business around this? And, and I saw you're the, one of the founding partners here. Um, how did you decide that, that, to go focus on early stage companies in the space?
1: yes it's you know because i have the operator background Justin. Actually, we started um continuing to lean into that that operator background so sure when i when i first left gallo i started um a consulting arm that you know very similar to what i was doing at gallo you know how do you build new brands how do you take them to market um and in that position too how do you get them financed? and and as we were going through that process i i you know found that i was Still working for gallo consistently working for a lot of the other big majors um you know constellation beam etc I, I kind of you name it I, I worked with them to build a brand but we were also working with a lot of really kind of exciting young and up and coming companies but the problem was we were, we were very expensive um sure. and and i it, you know there was just a problem with with this notion of okay let me let me take some of your working capital as a consultant to tell you what to do with what was left uh and it just became really apparent to us really quickly that uh, you know the, the the best way to do this, and by this time my my, my friend and business partner James Pugligni had joined the joined the consulting arm, also leaving Gallo. And it just became pretty apparent to us that that the, the next step was to build a venture capital arm um, to this this kind of o- overall approach to the system and fund these companies that we thought were successful and, and take kind of meaningful corporate governance positions. Because the one thing we can always do is. I've made enough mistakes that I can tell them what not. Um, <laughs> sure. I think we have to rely on the entrepreneur to have a really unique vision of the future. But um, I definitely have uh, made a lot of mistakes and, and can help them avoid some of those
0: potholes. I love it. So, And I'm going to come back to that in a few minutes because I can't wait to learn some of those from you. Um, so two, two parts of being a, a, in the venture capital space. One is having money to invest. The other is you know, companies to invest in. So um, how did you go about like, raising funds, first of all, for this space? And did you already know it was going to be focused in kind of the beverage space?
1: yeah i I think we definitely knew that that we wanted its primary focus to be beverage alcohol and then then when you when you start to understand that space, you know some of the other spaces like cannabis made some obvious sense, sure, and traditional beverage as well because uh, you know a lo- a lot of the metrics that you're looking at as you build out a portfolio are kind of similar um so we 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 understood the kind of really nice narrow focus that we definitely wanted to have at least in fund one and then as far as the raising. You know, this is this is always, I think, some of the most difficult things for 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 both the companies that we fund and frankly for us. Is you're you're out there, um, trying to you know consistently make contacts with you know institutional money, high net worth individuals, people that will believe in the vision that you're pitching. And um, you know, for for a lot of your listeners, and I tell this to my portfolio companies, it's it's not just the magic you put together in a pitch deck and you go out there. You, you <laughs> no. be you better be raising uh, six months plus. You know, you know, having these conversations before you go out there. And we were lucky enough to have a couple Couple folks really buy into the vision and really support, and, and we were actually able, able to, to raise fund one uh, remarkably quickly.
0: That's amazing. Yeah, um, and what a booming space that kind of niche and new entrant beverage brands are, are exploding yeah. right now. I think like Seltzer category, et cetera, and then the cannabis world. We've we've been covering cannabis now the last couple of months. Actually, some really big upstarts in this space that's just booming. Um, so, what makes a good investment company? So, it, it, you talked about bringing bringing in the dollars uh to, to go and in, out into invest but like what made it good for one hope or archer Roos or sourced or drinksmith or, or some of the others that you're invested in like what what worked that you said you know what this is an opportunity for us
1: yeah i mean like well <laughs> that, that alone could be like a, a three-hour <laughs> podcast <apart I'm> sure. <laughs> we actually do due diligence but but aside from you know you know a, a very strict set of, of metrics and KPIs that we look for, you take a step back. Um, the the whole thesis of the fund um, was we 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 want to go after this thing called brand plus. Okay. Um, and and the reason that is is you know from both Gallo and privately, I've been involved in so many brand launches. I have so many scars on my body that from from doing that that you start to realize that if. If you're trying to do it like everybody else, if you're, you know, take the beverage, beverage alcohol system for example, if you're sure. trying to do the same old, I'm going to go under the on premise, I'm going to get into bars, right. I'm going To try and get sampled, <laughs> and you're, then you're, like yeah. it's just a rock fight, it's a total rock fight, um, and and it burns a lot of cash, and frankly, it's probably not not um, not even worthy of venture dollars until perhaps the growth stage. So we looked at this and said, okay. Um, not only do we want a great brand to exist within our investments, but we also want them to have you know either a, a, a very you know, unified set of IP like true patents that might be either in package or liquid, or we want a really unique go to you know go to market business model, one that that you know might be very heavy on ecom or might be very heavy on on a distributed sales force like a one hope. And got it. the interesting thing for us is we we, we had this thesis before COVID hit. Um, and and were actively investing that way, and had had a vision of what was going to happen to a lot of the you know the overall systems here, um, and and what that really did was set us up for a lot of success within COVID because all COVID has really been an accelerant to a lot of the trends that were already there. And those trends
0: defined our, our prior thesis. Totally, totally agree. Um, we, we've covered the alcoholic beverage space on a couple of other podcast uh, podcast episodes, and we've talked about the three-tier distribution system and whatnot. Uh, do you find that the companies you're investing in have already figured that out, I'll call it, or are they so early stage that they're coming to you with brand concepts and, and product concepts but haven't tested the market yet? What, what, when they partner with you, you know, what are they typically looking for? Besides money.
1: <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, yeah it, 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 it can depend. I mean, if your listeners understand the future system, and I'll, I'll just recap it really quickly. There there are suppliers, and that can be as big as a Gallo or Diageo or as small as a startup. They make the thing. They then sell that to distributors, and the distributors then sell that to retailers. And retailers can be anything from bars you know, all the way to tiny liquor stores to large chains. And and you know, interestingly enough, the system can kind of—I I, would—I would argue go as far as being antagonistic to new brands. That's—it's very very difficult to get that middle tier, the distribution tier, to pay attention to you. Sure. Um, so when, when when we're looking at an investment, yeah, a hundred percent, we typically want to see buy-in from that middle tier, but more importantly. Um and, and much more indicative of, of the investments that we really heavy up on and have a lot of conviction around are, are companies that kind of um, deconstruct the middle tier and don't need the buying as much. So if you look at like a drinksmith, they're you know, in their current stage, they're almost one hundred percent e com. Um and, and they have such a good velocity and such good pull through that they can they can dictate terms to smaller distributors rather than the other way around. Sure. Or a one hope they, 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 they built, uh, you know, essentially an Amway of wine. They have 10,000 cause entrepreneurs out there selling their wine for them. So they, they basically rebuilt the middle tier as opposed to use it. So places where we get really excited are, 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 are brands that if they are successful and they're in that flywheel of success, they're actually minimizing the need for the distribution tier.
0: Got it. And as you're looking at these brands, are then the ones in your portfolio, are they approaching a a market segment that's just taking off for example i mentioned the hard seltzer space but or is it something more craft or like what are you finding as far as what's working you know in terms of being a new entrant in the industry
1: yeah that's that's a terrific question i think i I think that you know people sometimes put too much of an emphasis on trends um and, and and how many and how quickly me too products can come out of that so I, I think what you look for is, you know, un- underlying consumer behaviors um, and, 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 how, and how people meet with, interact, and, and become brand loyal to product. So, you know, yes, hard seltzers is going like crazy, but we actually haven't invested in the hard seltzer. Um, it, you know, what, what, if you ask me what's underlying the trend for hard seltzer, which is it's convenient, it's sessionable, it's flavorful, et cetera. Then we have, then we have many investments in kind of the underlying consumer need for what's driving hard seltzer. But I I, I think I think one of the most dangerous things to do often is, well, look how well White Claw is working um, and it's <laughs> right. capturing massive, massive market sure. share, uh, yeah. and, and then extrapolating that out to um, a, a, a lot of, of smaller products. Because I'll tell you, one of the easiest things in the world is to you know grab a mo- mobile canner and put together a couple thousand cases of hard seltzer. Right. It's harder to go sell them.
0: No yep. doubt. Yeah, I think people assume that there's a lower barrier of entry because, yeah, I mean you can go online, create a product, can it right? Put a, a nice label on the outside, and it's like, why can't I just go sell that? But I mean, it, especially if you get into the alcoholic beverage space, um, it's there, there's first of all there's laws <laughs> um, versus the non-alcoholic yeah. space, right? But then second, it's it there's only limited space on shelves for all of these unique and new entrants.
1: Yeah, I'm. I'm. I'm a lot more interested in, in in thinking about what's the next hard seltzer going to be,
0: um,
1: and and, sure. and working on that. The, new, the that, next category. Yeah. You know, in, in, incremental shelf space is always possible to get. <laughs> Trying to cut something new, whether it's a new vodka or a new hard seltzer, that's when retailers and distributors are like, "Eh, do we really need it?"
0: Totally. Yeah, I love that. Now. Um, in terms of uh, the the retail landscape, how important is it that you're, in, I'll call it your investment companies or your portfolio companies, probably a better way to phrase it, um, get access to retail versus is e-commerce truly a, a viable channel? Do you know what I'm saying? Like, what is that looking like for your type, your investment companies? Well, I mean, e- e-commerce is 100% a viable channel,
1: I, I, you know, especially accelerated by by COVID, I mean I, I found an interesting statistic yesterday that um, it was funny. It was in a deck from someone pitching us, and it, it, you know, it went, it went something along the lines of you know, the e-commerce penetration rate in in beverage alcohol is under three percent, and, and the average across other consumer categories is around twenty percent, and that's and that's even with the COVID bump. Wow, um, amazing! So there, there's a there's a really long way to go in beverage alcohol for e-commerce, and we think it's it's one hundred percent a trend. But what you have to remember is is the costs that come with it. Um so you know, there are a lot there are a lot of really big pros to e-commerce because fundamentally what it does is it turns fixed costs into variable costs. Um rather than building a sales force that can go out and help get your stuff on shelf, help get it sampled, et cetera, which I would argue is more of a fixed cost, all of your all of your cost moves into digital ads. For the most Got part, it. Um and discounts and stuff like that. So it, it's it's great. You, know, it, uh, it, you should always favor variable costs over fixed costs because it's more nimble. You can turn it off if it's not working, et cetera. So that's wonderful, but that doesn't mean the cost is not there. So I think a lot, a lot of folks think e-commerce is this panacea um, and it's great and it, it'll be a tailwind in, in BevAlk and frankly in traditional beverage for a long time. But you do need to realize that it's, it's not free um, and you're still having to make very, very strategic financial decisions around how you support it Um, And whether or not your product is apt for it.
0: Got it. And you know, early days of e-commerce, one of the biggest concerns was around just shipping costs because beverage is so heavy. Is that still the case, or is that no? Is that kind of gone out the window? As as I'll call it, more shipping options.
1: (laughs) You're you're, you're you're like you're like speaking my language right now <laughs> but so time, like,
0: it's, you know back it's, seriously it's like back year. when beverage companies like the big guys were trying to sell through amazon it was like well who's gonna pay like ten dollars for a 12 pack of coke cans you know what i mean with <laughs> grocery store, it's 289 yeah. $2. or whatever so anyway go ahead
1: <laughs> well it, it, you know you, you've actually just hit the nail
0: on the head <laughs> why i think
1: that e-com is actually a bigger opportunity in beverage alcohol than it is in traditional beverage because like yeah it's really hard to ship you know a 24 pack of vitamin water economically oh my god it's heavy the the basket sizes on on bev are so much higher that it almost like a priori accounts for the ability to put shipping in so you know on something like a drinksmith we have an average order value after only being in, in market for six months of, of near a hundred dollars, like you can afford shipping when you're doing totally, that. Totally. Um, and, and it's, um, it just it completely changes because the, the weight is lower. Um, you know, and it's a sliding scale, you know, the, the value to shipping for an expensive bottle of whiskey versus, you know, some, some pre-made cocktails slightly different, but for the most part, um, that's where I think there's such a massive opportunity for BevAlk and in, in e-commerce because the weight isn't there. Um, and the basket size is there.
0: Got it. That's interesting. That's a, actually a great point for anybody that hasn't really worked around the consumer product space. But, um, well, okay. So you've learned a lot from working with these different companies. T- share with our audience, like, some of the things that are working well. In other words, I'm sorry, as as a one of your portfolio companies, what would be the things that they're doing right? You know, the ones that are doing it right. And then maybe even some points of things to avoid. You know what I'm saying? Some lessons learned. Yeah. I
1: mean, it's it, you know, it's so funny because to, to speak about this right now is, is basically a proxy for speaking about COVID. Oh, um, got it. So, you know, when when we're mm-hmm. when we're in the COVID area, anyone with an effective e-commerce arm um, and and the ability to, to 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 drive trial without having to be in front of a person, they're winning.
0: Sure. Um,
1: and and we have, we have some companies that I that I would argue, and I, and I make this argument internally all the time in a different universe with no COVID might be the stars of the show. Um, but they were on-premise heavy or, you know, on-premise meaning bars and stuff like that. Sure. Or, or they were more of a traditional model um, and, and they're having to pivot. So, you know, right now, um, having an e commerce arm is is really everything. Got it. And, and the, the question is going to be, you know, everyone saw the news this morning where the, the most recent vaccine, you know, had 90% efficacy in its latest, latest trial um i i don't know you know it's kind of this whole notion of okay e-commerce was gradual then sudden and then how much is it going to remain once once we kind of sure. come out of the system and that's i think that's what everybody's working through right
0: that's now. that's a great question yeah that is the well the, the the pendulum swung extremely hard into e-commerce right because of covid and so the question is how far back does it come or do you keep some of that or maintain some of that right Mm-hmm. What about op, from an operating perspective you've worked with different leadership teams uh, you've worked with different personalities and whatnot what what have you seen from a people perspective and in, in terms of what works in a startup and um, an early stage brand
1: yeah it's, uh, I, I was actually just having this conversation with someone i um, if you kind of imagine two poles like on you know on on one end it's uh, almost over investing in getting top heavy. In, in talent be, before your revenue is there um, and, and, and you know, kind of always trumpeting your new hire um, <laughs> right. kind of before your, your revenue growth is there. And then the other end of that pole is, is growing too fast and stretching the founders too thin um, and, and, and taking their eye off the ball on the real strategic decisions because they're constantly doing operational things. Got it. Um, so I, I think, you know, being somewhere, somewhere in the middle is good I, I typically preference people who are in in the middle towards still putting too much on the founder's plate because of, of of how how frugal that is is with with committed capital um but that that to me i've started it started to become a really big flag um and signal to me just around the personality of the founder is you know you know are are, are you too you know too focused on building your organization rather than been showing results but on the other end are you are you, are you unable to to delegate and create teams that that can that can maximize the founder's vision as opposed to 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 just um, just supporting it? So that that's that's a big thing that I'm focusing on right now, and I'm I'm finding that if you're in the you know in the, in the quadrant that's middle towards the I don't add people until I definitely need them, is, are the most effective overall teams.
0: Wow, that's some great advice. If that makes sense, it I, does.
1: I, I almost feel like I needed a, a whiteboard to do that. But, uh, <laughs> <Right.
0: hopefully. laughs> I think it makes sense, man. I, I And it, it's an interesting tension, right, that any founder has. Some people are great at ops. Some are the great visionary and trying to do both and build a team. It can be a challenge. Um, you know, you, you look at different proposals. You mentioned even in the last 21 minutes um, some different pitches you've gotten. Like what? For those out there that are thinking, "Hey, I know that I've got a great idea, but in order to grow it, I'm going to need funding and and capital and whatnot." Like, what what makes a good pitch to you guys? Like, what are the things you're looking for?
1: Um, you know, there, there's always like it's funny. Venture venture capital has like a very certain need, right? You know, <laughs> totally. and, and it's best used. It's best used when with money. I'm going to be able to build something that I couldn't otherwise build just through standards, you know, sales growth. So, sure. and, and I think that's why we end up having such an IP focus or a business model focus where people are basically coming to us and say, Hey, I have this vision of the world. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll take Drinksmith Smith, for example. And they say, you know, we, we can make these amazing overnight to you cocktails with HPP packing, separate chambers, but at low levels, Custom packaging is expensive, so totally. we really need to burn capital to get to a volume place where, where then the flywheel starts, and then I, then I get really, really excited because I go, okay, I can, I can, I can see the world you're envisioning, and I understand why you need to to burn capital to get there because at a, at a certain point the switch will flip, your margins will get to a place where you're self-sustaining, and off to the races we go. I get much less excited when someone comes and said, "Hey, I want to build this new hard seltzer, which fundamentally isn't different from other hard seltzers." I just think, with my stick-to-itiveness and my eagerness, I, I can I can get it there. And here's the thing: some people will, and and you'll you'll always look back and say, oh, I was pitched by this thing that ended up being very successful." Sure, but you you can't get you can't get necessarily over persuaded by that because you have to stick to an actual thesis. Everybody does. Um, and and for us, it is much more. Okay, what is this person's really unique vision of the future, and and why do they need seed capital to even to even try and get there, as opposed to just bootstrapping the whole thing.
0: Love that perspective. I, you know, one other question um, before we wrap up, you know, I'll, I've seen some beverage brands, especially new upstarts looking at, at either leveraging, um, you know, social or influencer marketing or, you know, trying to to get a big name to rep their product or even <laughs> be a big name and put your name on the side of vodka. Um, it does that work? i mean what what's been your observation there, or is it just part of an overall strategy? Does that make sense
1: it, it can definitely work and and it's kind of like anything right it, it it's it's a it's more towards a finishing aspect to a brand rather than a foundation because if you're already super healthy and and you can show me that without the celebrity you have you know, this kind of repurchase rate and so and so and so and all you really need is more people on the top of the funnel and the right. go like crazy. Then influencer marketing is great. Like it, it, it all comes down to, you know, what does your funnel look like? And if you're if you're really, really strong at, at keeping your customers and your lifetime value is high, then it's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing to to, to add a celebrity or add an influencer that that will drive more people into the top of the funnel. It, you know, I, I get a little bit less enthusiastic when the only reason someone would be there is because of the celebrity. Right. Um, and <laughs> you know, right. and and that being said, um, you know, some are going to be successful doing that. And, totally. and I, I and I and I get that. Um, so you know, one thing I would I would leave your listeners with is, well, turn that on its head. Like, you know, ra- rather than trying to find the right thing that makes you know the the right product that has a celebrity endorsement to make it successful, that's a needle in the haystack. Um, one of the things that we're doing more and more right now is focusing on the tools that can actually make it easier for celebrities or influencers to create brands. So, you know, you know, what, what are the underlying picks and shovel companies that make it kind of turnkey for any celebrity? Totally. Um, Absolutely. Then you have something that piques my interest.
0: I love that. Um, This is so awesome. and uh, by the way, looking forward to having your portfolio companies on the podcast and talk about their their brands and whatnot. Um, Carlton, share yeah. W- yeah, share with our listeners how they can connect with you, learn more about your your fund, um, even maybe even reach out with a pitch and whatnot. How can they can they connect with you? Yeah, the um, I,
1: I, the, the email address that kind of kind of goes to the overall pitch bucket is called the roundup, you know, T H E R U N D U P at, at good rodeo capital.com. Um, we, we have a website that's funny. Like, it, it, it cracks me up, even like within within our business, like what things we focus on and what we do. And spoiler alert: the website's not one of them. Um, I don't, we don't I I <laughs> yeah. had to,
0: I did have to find most of my information around your website, but that's okay.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I, mean, I just, I mean, it, it's built on like it, it looks like it's GeoCities website, and I, I'm, I'm poking fun, you know. Uh, so we, pro- we probably should get that flicker, but. Um, but the, the ability to contact us there and, and learn a little bit more about our portfolio companies totally. there, and yeah, we, I mean, we welcome we welcome pitches. That's exactly how we how we learn. And I, I I'd like to think that even people that we haven't found funded have found our advice useful. And and uh, we we tend to be pretty liberal with our time because we we believe in these founders. Um, you know the the. If, if if you're if you're a venture capitalist and you don't like hearing pitches, you probably are not in the right place.
0: Your... <laughs> <laughs> I, and For yeah, those, yeah. you know, one thing I'll just have to finish with this too. Um, some of you listening are probably wondering, like, why goat rodeo? Like, why why the name? So I'll read this, and then yeah. Carlton, you tell me the the story around this so, um, stems from the belief that any promising early stage company has one or two things that they do really well: a strong vision, and the rest is usually a goat rodeo. <laughs> it's, I mean, how did you come up with this? <laughs> so great! I mean,
1: first of all, it's true, right? I know uh, it is. And, That's what I think is funny yeah. about
0: it. <laughs> it's great.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't think people even realize, like, you know, some, some of the, you know, some of the startups that even the average person will have heard of. Like, if you go spend some time behind the scenes there, you'd be like, "This is chaos. What,
0: what is going it's hilarious. on?" Serious.
1: Um, and the, I mean, the other reason really is like, like a sense of humor and and you know you know not being too uptight and totally and, you know about this is, is how we got here. So you know, I, I just couldn't imagine calling the company like execution capital. Right. Or, <laughs> that's a know, yawner. Sort
0: of try, try <sighs> kind of, like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just, I just kind of
1: like, oh, come on. Like, like stop taking yourself so seriously. Like, right. we're, 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 you
0: know, so I think it's, uh, cool, man. That's, I, I like it. Yeah. I, it's creative. Uh, Carlton, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Looking forward to having you guys back on and, and your companies as well.
1: Sounds great. I really appreciate the time.
0: The Contender Cast is sponsored by Henderson Shapiro Peck and powered by Contender Brands. You can download additional ContenderCast episodes directly via Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartMedia, YouTube, and other preferred podcast platforms. If you would like to be a guest on the ContenderCast, connect with us at ContenderCast.com.